0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Home and Away, a podcast devoted to all things in and around the world, Sporting Kansas City Soccer. I am Drew Vanderplug, joined once again, as always, by my good friend Cody Welton. This week on the podcast, Sporting Kansas City won a game, and it wasn't an Open Cup match versus a semi-pro team that had to ask for the day off from their actual jobs to play in it, but an actual MLS match against the Western Conference leading Seattle Sounders in their own stadium. Feels good. Feels real good. All three designated players, and honestly every key player in the front five of this team, started this match, and they performed like it. Sporting Kansas City had a level of midfield control that we have all come to expect, but have rarely seen this season, and Seattle struggled to deal with it. In fairness, Joao Paulo's absence due to yellow card accumulation was certainly certainly fortuitous for Sporting Kansas City. Do coaches really matter? Obviously, much of the discourse surrounding this team lately has been the continued employment of Peter Vermees. And when it might be time for that to end, we've even discussed it on this podcast. John Muller wrote a fascinating article for The Athletic regarding the value coaches actually have, and we'll discuss some of the assertions it makes. There was a mild contretemps after the game on Sunday between sporting legend Preki and members of the SKC technical staff, and I'm here to break down every step of the interaction with a deep review that would make the biggest Sapruder film fan jealous. Uh, Cody, as we get into the first item of the top three this week, which is finally feeling some positive vibes after the win on Sunday, I'm going to ask that we do our best to keep it positive during our analysis this week. Because while I agree with Peter Vermees that there's still a lot to improve on. We already have a bit of a reputation as the Stadler and Waldorf of SKC podcasters, (laughs) so perhaps we can just be nice for one week. Uh, Who knows how many of these opportunities we will have?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm positive. I'm positive that we were right about a lot of things. That's what I'm positive about. Um, But uh, seriously, though, kudos to the team they did a really really great job Uh, it's not an easy place to play it's not an easy team to play and uh, they they went up there and they got it done and and I think like even even more impressive for me is they looked up for it from the very beginning. They they didn't go up there and, you know, looking like a team that, that was winless in 10 games. They went up there uh, with some confidence and maybe even a little bit of swagger. And yeah, having your three DPs really goes a long way towards, you know, helping that. Um, but they also were playing, you know, a bunch of younger kids too i mean they too, our our fullbacks were basically babies and um and you know relatively unproven and uh they played well and i thought i mean really i thought every every starting player played uh very well
0: it it goes back to the vermee's conversation about sticking to the plan and not just drastically changing the plan there's something that we have asked for just cuz we couldn't see a way out you know we we had the yeah. same we had the same concerns that Johnny Russell did after the Montreal game. Like, I don't see a way out of this. There's just so many things not working. Mm-hmm. You have to try something different just to inject a little bit of life and maybe get people focused and try something new. Burmese didn't do that. He stuck with the plan. He kept he kept the plan fairly consistent. Uh, the players were different, and the the players that played were played very well. Which, which has a lot to do with that. But there there was a conversation on the Sporting Kansas City show this week where they talked about uh, Tony Miola was on there with, with Nate and Allie, and they discussed whether or not it would make sense, given the fact that Sporting was going to Seattle, had not really won any games this year, and should they, you know, absorb? Should they play in a little bit of a mid-to-low block? Should they, you know, try to take the sting out of the game, slow it down, play very... Um, I don't want to call it negatively, but certainly against the ball a little bit because they haven't been very successful so far this year. And obviously Seattle has, and they did not do that. They so, didn't I mean, have a, well, they,
1: of, they, they kind of ended up doing that in the second half, protecting and the, the second lead, half but, to protect the lead, yeah.
0: but they did, they did not to get the lead. Yeah. They that did wasn't not their goal. that at yep. all. Mm-hmm. It was, it was very much a traditional sporting Kansas city that we saw. They were very aggressive in the midfield, counter-pressing and winning duels and trying to turn the team, turn, turn the opponent over Playing a get playing a four, three, three against a double pivot allows you to do that a lot, especially the double pivot with Rusnak and Vargas. I don't think that either one of those guys is someone you're super concerned about uh, from mm-hmm. from, you know, as far as being able to win the ball off of them or intercept them or and, and Rusnak gets so high. Vargas was on an island a lot of this game. They they very much played their regular system and just did it well. And they were very aggressive um in the first half of this game and obviously they had to be because kind of was only good for a half yeah so it took the brakes off took the parking brake off and just let them go and i I don't necessarily i mean obviously it played out it worked they created the the best chances i've seen them create all year yeah um there were positive runs into the box from the midfield it was wild (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, that's what this looks like.
1: I didn't, I didn't recognize kind of, the team Yeah. All.
0: Well, and I was I was um, I was communicating with you and a few other friends of mine. And I was like, oh, that this is the team I remember. I haven't yeah. seen them in a while. And it, it, it's definitely um, nice to see them playing this way and yeah, trailing runs into the box. That's how they scored the first goal. Um, Jake Davis gets, you know, we, we're going to talk about him here when we get to this, the last part of the top three. But Jake Davis had a great game, but he gets wide into space, allows the switch from Shallowy, which starts the whole sequence then yeah. plays Tommy into the half space. And then as as Tommy starts to cut in. Polito does that really smart peel off run towards the near post yeah, was, to give him a place to pass it. That was it. it was, that
1: was it. <laughs> it was an
0: it was a very smart, very good run and an unbelievably well placed ball from Tommy. We've been giving him yeah. stick most of the season about not being able to hit that pass. Brilliant pass from him. Absolutely. Yeah. On a platter. And then Polito does what good Polito has done in the past, which is if you give him any angle he's going to put it on the frame and yeah. you better be at your top game to be able to try and stop it so
1: it was great it was good to see uh, Polito's movement was vital for the first goal too because he made a, a, a kind of similar run where you know he 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 drifted out out wide right and it took uh it took a defender with him and forced uh forced the other defenders to kind of you know pay attention to him uh and that left that big space um in the middle of the field uh, for both Gotti and, and tommy to run in on so uh i thought that uh polito's movement on the day was really really fantastic you know and, and and frankly the just the the movement and spacing of the team overall uh was um was by far superior to what we've seen so far this year and you know i think that uh, they played with a tremendous amount of width um and um, and athleticism on the wings and if you if you look at the heat maps of of the of of the, the fullbacks and outside wingers and uh and the two eights, Tommy and Kinda or or Tommy and uh and uh, Felipe you'll notice that they are not even in the middle of the field. I mean they there's there's no there's like nothing. There's no touches in the middle of the field for those players. They are just funneling everything out wide and they're they're restricting all of their duels and all of their uh um riskier passes to uh to that wide um those wide spaces and that's you know that allowed them to really sort of control the game and and you know it was really apparent to me and I I texted you this during the game it was just like how little um Seattle was able to control the midfield. Um and and, and part of that obviously was due to um John Paulo not being there, but it was a lot of it was due to uh the way that sporting was playing and sporting was really denying that to them um and really focusing um on on wing play. And you know what we saw is is um is the value of having um of having players who can run the sidelines you know um and 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 who can provide with consistently um and i think that that in addition to to having the you know in ndenbe and and uh, Jake Davis out there doing that. Uh, you also had Tommy switched um, to a different side. He was playing on the right side. And I really think that that is uh, a better spot for him. I think that positionally uh, it, it it suits him a little bit better. It, it, uh, it takes the onus off of him to, to shoot all the time. It sort of opens up maybe uh, passing lanes for him a little bit better, but I think more importantly, it makes uh, it makes a little more space for, um, you know whoever that other left-sided eight is and for uh and for Shaloui, who you I know mean, Shallowie didn't have his greatest game but i thought that uh, he didn't have a bad game by any means and his pressing this game was was still um really high level so i mean all in all i mean it was a it was a really uh i think comprehensive performance and you know i think it really speaks to um we when we we talked before about balance and having a, a squad that's balanced and that means like you know Obviously, you know personnel-wise off of the field, but also on the field, and and if if you're not compensating for you know deficiencies from from uh, other starting players, you can focus on the things that that your team has practiced in order to do well. Uh,
0: the balance. Characteristics exactly what I was going to take from what you were talking about. The the team was very, very balanced left to right. They showed the graphic at halftime of the game. And to your point, there was not a whole lot going through the middle of the field. But the left and the right side were equally balanced. And that's not something we've seen from this team as much over the last couple of years. They've been very one sided, typically on the left side. That's not what we're seeing from them right now. They are a very balanced team. I think that there is some work to be done with Tommy on the right side with Russell, them building a partnership over there. I think Johnny was a little bit negated in this game because of Tommy's presence. He's, I don't want to call him, he's not a ball hog, but he does end up on the ball a lot. That is Tommy's thing. That's what he's doing, and as a result, I think that Johnny's touches were limited with, with Tommy on the same side as him. But to your point, it created some balance in the offense, and it and it pulled the opponent's defense away from the left side a little bit, which allowed some space for Kinda to do things. It it's just it, it, all the stuff you talked about is exactly what I would agree with. It was very it was very wide in the play. You had you had the wingers and the fullbacks with the with the 8 sort of tucked into the half space underneath the wingers it was creating a very interesting dynamic of of kind of overloading either side because you you can only have so yeah. many defenders over there yeah and so when you have those three players kind of covering those three vertical channels it's really difficult to defend it and yep. um they use that to their advantage because both of the goals were created off of those overloads. Mm-hmm. One was on the ground, but the other one was through the air. It was, was a really nice cutback from Shalloway. Shalloway gets the hockey assist, I think, on that one because mm-hmm. he he he's the one that drags everybody down to the line and then hits that cutback to the top of the 18. And for, for once in our fucking lives, <laughs> there were runners there to receive it. But he picked out the pass. He saw the runners. He saw Gotti making that run yeah. and picked out the pass to him. And then Tommy was dragging behind him, so it, it it was just the offensive movement that is very direct and very clear in its intent that we haven't seen in a while.
1: I think that that it's just when when you have when you're face when you're a defense who's facing an attack um, that's coming at you from every angle. And consisting of multiple players and different players in different sequences. Um, I don't think you know when when you're able to attack, you know sometimes with your left back and your left side at eight and other times with your right winger and right back and and center forward, there's it, it's it's daunting, you know you you can only cover so many people. <laughs> I mean and and then and then when you you have a, 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 a an attacking, Uh, spacing that is, that is relying so much on wide um, and, and dragging players um, those central players and central defenders sort of out wide, creating space for midfielders to attack into. And then you have midfielders actually making those runs. I mean, that's, you know, you know, it, the the entire team was dangerous, right? I um, mean, even even uh, Fontas had a uh, a pretty high XG chance on the on a header um, that he sent wide. But, Cross from um, Indenbe.
0: It was a really yeah. pretty ball played in by Indenbe on a recycled yep. one that he that he flipped in there. It was it was yeah. There, uh, Voltaire came to the top of the box and caught one as yeah, well. On a recycled yep. ball that they pulled back. So everybody was crashing everybody was and that's what we've been asking for all (laughs) year (laughs) yeah and and i know the xg didn't bear this out in crazy high numbers but there's two things i would say in regards to that one seattle's xg was vastly improved by their penalty yes that's over half of their xg is because that one penalty shot so something to be taking into account when you look at that and the second thing is sporting was goal dangerous yeah there's there's a difference we've been we've been talking about this for a while about big chances they actually created two big chances in this game Mm -hmm. they have not created two big chances in a game all year yep this is the first time they've ever done it they scored on both of them this is the kind of stuff we're talking about effective attacking movement inside the 18 yard box both of the goals were scored on shots inside the 18 another thing that sporting the sporting kansas city show talked about this past week was that they are the worst in MLS or the furthest away from goal in MLS an average shot position of mm-hmm. 21 yards. So their average shooting position is 21 yards. Not ideal. <laughs> You're not going <laughs> to score regularly from that position. Not, <laughs> so, not unless,
1: not unless you have Kevin Bruyne on here. That's yeah, funny.
0: exactly. Or, or Vinnie jr. Vinnie jr. <laughs> hit a rocket from out from deep too, but they, they, they um, you're you're not going to consistently score from those from that distance. And there and Tommy took one early that uh, he almost scored on. And I I, I appreciate the, the, these guys have the skill to do it. But if we want this team to start bagging multiple goals a game, they've got to start shooting inside the 18. And both of the goals came from those types of plays. So it was I think
1: the one of the things that that Tommy did and I kind of referenced it earlier um and and you know even though you said that that he did take that shot and he did and I I don't mind that shot um I think in this game more so than uh, a lot of the games recently um Tommy has looked he looked to pass before he shot um it seemed like especially and that's why I said like maybe 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 me uh having him play uh, as that right-sided eight is is a as a better place for him because it it sort of takes him out of shooter's mindset. Cause you know, if he's, if he's on the left side, he's always cutting in onto his, uh, dominant foot and so always looking for the shot uh, and the angle's not quite there. Um, it's, it's I think maybe a little bit easier to pass uh, from from the the right side when you're right footed than it is to shoot uh, and so uh, I think that maybe that that had something to do with it. But I think regardless uh, he was much more patient. He was uh, he was much more adept at looking um uh looking to to find uh runners um i and i can't remember uh honestly when um when a, a sporting kansas city had team has really played this many like nice through balls um they did a really good job and um and so uh and and you know that that ball that he hit to Polito for the second goal like was i mean it's a fantastic ball and you know we, we were talking about it when we were watching Ethan Bryant play, how we, you know, we don't see uh, a lot of our midfielders doing that. And it's just that little bit of that little bit of patience, that little bit of, of, of calmness on the ball, that little bit of having your head up and and looking for your teammates to put them into good spots instead of needing to, you know, feeling like you have to take it all all on yourself. Uh, I think that made a huge, huge difference.
0: A common refrain about him over the past several games is that he's trying to do too much. Uh, and I think that there is he definitely played much more within himself and in his game on Sunday, which you can see the performance improved significantly because of it. I don't know if it's because he was on the right and he's not he he can't cut in onto his left and take shots. I don't I, I think it's a little bit of that. I think it's also some of the fact that he knows that kind is of his level and he knows that he has quality players around him. I think part of the reason that he was doing so much at the beginning of the season is related to the availability of the players around him and at that level they were at. Even Polito, this is, he's, you can see him rounding into form and getting to full fitness and getting to full game fitness. Like not just his, not just his knee getting up to shape, but his game getting up to shape. That has not been the case up until now. And so I felt like he was, trying to do too much. And I, I think that there are two things can be true. One is the coach and Vermees has talked about this, telling him, Hey, this is what I need you to do. Just do these things. Try Don't, don't try to do 78 things more than this. Just do these things. But the other part is he has the faith in the quality of the players around him. And that's why I noted in the, in the hit that they have their five best, their their front five is their front five best players to start this match. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And when you have all of those, all of a sudden, I think Tommy recognizes that he doesn't have to do more than he's. Ostensibly asked to do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, other things from this game, I was really pleased with how well I saw the team reorganize in transition moments. There were several, of, and some of this is just due to the fact that they had 21- and 22-year-old fullbacks that can get back very quickly. But still, the the defense of the organization, even when they got dispossessed in their own half, was so much better than I remember seeing. Um, In the Montreal match, one of the things that really stuck out to me was just how chaotic their transition defense was. That was not the case in this match at all they were extremely organized in transition events they got back into their back their 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 back five would get into a line and and get very compact and not allow a whole lot of space to Seattle in those transition moments this we'll talk about the last 20 minutes when we we talk about Jake Davis here in a second but i think that i was very very happy with how well not only did they aggressively attack the ball through the middle of the pitch, but if Seattle got behind them, their reorganization was really good.
1: Yeah, and I think that I think that as you mentioned, some of that has to do with just having um, you know some younger legs on the wings, but it also it, it also I think is um, is not having to cover for players who don't have the legs or who don't have the you know, the, the wherewithal to keep up with it. And, you know, when you have to cover for players who, who, uh, maybe have some, uh, liabilities in that respect it pulls you out of shape, right? So, you know, for instance, you might have, uh, um, Remy Voltaire, you know, shielding to the right to cover for Roger who can't get back or for Zusi who can't get back. And they're both on the right-hand side. Whereas, you know, if you have somebody who can, who can sort of keep up and, and tow that line over there, you, Voltaire can stay more central and can, you know, do the job of, of a defensive midfielder a little bit better. And which is a, which is, you know, a, in in large part, um, helping to stop transition, um, uh, opportunities, I think. And, you know, I, I, and, and I, I mean, I, I honestly don't think that Jake Davis has gotten enough credit because I mean he didn't play a perfect game, but man, when you, when you consider that he is, he's 21, it's only like his, his, his what second MLS game or second game at ever his first mls game played at, at at right back i mean he had to go up against uh against lodero who, who shades over to that side against leo chu who was on that side against uh uh jordan morris who was either centrally or Uh, shading to that side Uh, that's like three legitimate attacking you know really dangerous transition attacking players and I think that you know I think that he really held his own and he made he made a, a few big plays and and more importantly he didn't he didn't make a disastrous play right I mean he wasn't perfect but he didn't you know he didn't make a terrible play that that um that got him on everybody's radar in a bad way
0: well, let's get into Jay Davis then. So he he is a, he is a, a part of the top three. He was going to be the third one. But let's go let's go straight to him now. He he played great, um, probably the best defender on the field for sporting in this game. All in like his performance overall, I thought Rosero and Fontes were a good pairing together. Yeah, I have some concerns about Rosero's passing. But (laughs) um, it's not great, (laughs) but he wins literally every aerial duel. He wins literally every ball in his area. So Mm -hmm. I'm sort of like I can get over the passing part of it if he's cleaning up everything, which he did. And the last 20 minutes, he cleared everything, Yep, like literally everything. So I'm I'm good with it. Um, And
1: if he if he can start to thump home, you know, a few. Uh, uh, attacking set piece headers than, I mean, any. he was on goal is, on a couple
0: of them. He, was, that he just, yeah. he just, just barely missed the header. So it's close. I, I'm, yeah, he, you can see it's coming. You can see yeah. it's coming that he has a nose for those. So I'm, I'm good. I'm good with that. But, and I think in Den had a very good and solid game. Um, Jake Davis, as you noted, had a lot of the attacking direction from Seattle coming down his side. They were going to try to do the same thing they did against Sporting when they played him at home, which was really beat down the left, the the their left side, the Sporting's right side of their defense. And Leo Chu had nothing, got nothing yeah. from this game whatsoever, yeah. and it, it it was just um, an extremely like intelligent performance from Jake. And that's the part that I really like. His positioning was super strong. He mm-hmm. never really got himself into a bad spot. He would get up into attack and find space when it was available. He wasn't super aggressive about it, but he was a, you know, he was a part of the the buildup sequence that created the second goal. But he was also just really aware of his positioning and where he needed to be. And, because he's not 36 years old, he can recover when he needs to. And again, this I'm not trying to shit on Graham Zusi, but it was a problem when they played in, in, in uh, Kansas City. He yep. just could not cover Leo Chu behind. And when Leo Chu would try to get out on the run, Davis was there, strive for strive yep. with him the whole time. Um, I'm going to read off some numbers for you. I've got him in the rundown here. He was five for six on his duels, which is an unreal rate for a fullback, dude. That is an unreal rate that's, of winning that's the, the most, ball. That's the most duels won on the team, too. Mm-hmm. Two for three on tackles, seven recoveries, and still was 25 for 31, 80, 81% passing, with five of those passes into the final third. Yep. He's a good all player. of that, all of that done, zero fouls committed. It's impressive. That is an unreal stat chart for a fullback. Yeah. And he's not a fullback. Like, that's the other thing. He, he like, is now. <laughs> well, he is now. He is for this team for the time being, and I think he will be for a while. Um, I've heard some folks say that, you know, he, it's his job until someone gives him a reason not uh, – so until he gives him a reason not to be his job. I I think that you're probably jumping the gun a little bit, and there, there's some opportunity for some spotty games because he is a 21-year-old kid playing out of mm-hmm. position. Yeah. But all of that said, fantastic performance by him. I, I can't I cannot believe I did. I did not see this coming yeah. at all. No, but nobody it was, did. <laughs> it was it, it, <laughs> I think Peter Vermes is probably sitting there saying I didn't see this coming. <laughs> and and Vermes was fairly effusive with the praise towards his performance against Montreal, which we agreed was good. I don't think it was perfect, but it was good. And it was even better against Seattle. And yeah. I I mean, he he he's earned every plaudit that he's getting because he he definitely stepped up.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's great to see. It's great to see a, a, an academy player coming through and getting a chance and making good on that chance and from Michigan.
0: And, well, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I was going to say that part of it, but that's okay. Um, well, I'm from Michigan originally, so I, I I like I like when some of the Michigan boys come good, even if yeah. it's in Kansas City.
1: At least he was actually in the academy and not like uh ethan bryant who wasn't even really part of our academy at all so it's a little bit a little bit better in terms of that but i'm, I'm excited to see him I, ho- I hope he keeps getting uh chances uh because i think that um i think it's just a really uh a valuable addition and you know um if if, if we can continue to have that added sort of attack and and um, um, source of athleticism on, on that right-hand side, it, we've we saw, it just opens up all kinds of possibilities.
0: And I think some people will highlight a couple chances that Seattle created in the last 20 minutes where Jordan Morris moved to the, to the left wing and uh, Freddie Montero was playing centrally. Actually, I think Freddie Montero moved to the right wing and then Eber moved into the, the, the striker spot. But regardless um, they started really, pushing Jordan Morris wide and, and against Jake. And there were a couple sequences where Morris got on goal, especially the there was one sequence where he definitely got on goal and, and pushed the shot wide. And I think some people would say, well, Jordan Morris got behind him. Well, first of all, there's not a right back in this league that's running with Jordan Morris in that scenario. Like you're not. He's one of the fastest wingers we have in the league. Yeah. So it's extremely difficult to stay with him. But even the one that he pushed wide, it's because of Davis's tackle that he pushes the shot wide. Like, if yep. you watch it, the tackle's extremely well-timed. And believe it or not, should have been a corner kick to Seattle because Davis touched it wide. That's, like, why that shot went wide. That's why Jordan Morris was so mad. They, they were like, Jordan Morris wants a penalty. No, he wants a corner kick because yeah. Davis touched the ball out. Similarly, there was another sequence where it looks like Morris has got a half step on him, but he's he's actually shading him to the far post. And when Morris takes the shot, that's because that's where the goal. That's what you're supposed to do as a fullback. Yeah, push him to the line so the goalkeeper can cover the post. It's, It's really, really intelligent stuff from a guy who is not really a fullback. Yeah. And so like that stuff, when I see that, I'm just I'm it's fun to see a young player from our academy as you noted playing well and getting minutes and i sort of by accident but i'll take it um he's 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 taken he's taken he's taken the opportunity very well and deserves to continue to get opportunities for sure absolutely okay um the last thing in the top three is, is our guy Felipe Hernandez also from the Academy um, originally from, although from Nashville, Tennessee, as we've noted several times in this podcast, there aren't a whole lot of guys from Kansas city on this squad. Um, But Felipe um, came in at halftime for Gotti. Apparently the scenario was Radoya was supposed to be available for this match, but came down with illness. So that had to do with kind of the weird uh, midfield rotation where Gotti started the match, but we knew he wasn't 90 minutes fit or even close to it. Um, So Felipe comes on for Gotti at halftime. There was a noticeable dip in performance from the midfield when that happened. Now, two things I think can be true here. One of them is Felipe Hernandez is not as good at soccer as Gotti Kinda. I don't think that that's a wild take to have. The other part is, um, well, there's three things true here. Seattle came out very hard in the, the first 15 minutes of the second half. They were running an extremely high line. They were doing everything they can to try to score a goal. And then thirdly, I don't think Felipe Hernandez's traits are very well used on this team. I think he's asked to do stuff that just isn't necessarily his forte. Um, What do you think?
1: I. uh, Yeah. So, when we kind of we kind of touched on this you, um, either last week or a few weeks ago when we were talking about him and the the, the comparisons to to Roger Espinosa and how um, when when Felipe first came on the scene everybody was calling him Little Raj or whatever and um, and he's I and and you and I agreed that he's not really like that player I mean um, he he can tackle and and he had a he had a a, a good number of tackles on um um on on saturday or on sunday but um that's not like that's not his main thing he's he's a terrier he runs around he's a high energy player um i think that uh personally i think that where players like tommy and Kinda have um have an advantage over him is is that um his off ball movement maybe isn't uh as sophisticated as those guys and so um so (laughs) You know, it's kind of one of those things where he, yeah, he's, he's, he's running, he's a all energy guy, but he also kind of has to do that because maybe he doesn't put himself in the, in the best positions off the ball to begin with. Um, I do think that, um, and, and I, and this might be related, uh, he doesn't, he, he doesn't, um, he doesn't always, uh, have the opportunity to get forward into the box. I think as much as maybe he would like, and as much as um, um, he, he could do like he, I think he could be very successful at that. Uh, But I think he finds himself sort of out of, out of that play a lot of the time. Um, And he has a hard time like toggling between um, um, the defensive uh, responsibilities of his role and then the attacking responsibilities. Um, But you know, I mean, I don't know. He it might just be he's just uh he's just a situational um um uh bench player uh on an MLS team and um and that's fine, you know. I mean he doesn't necessarily uh have to be a starting level player, but um I do I do agree with you that they're that I, I, I don't I, I don't think he is I don't think he's like an eight in um, in a four-three-three, like I don't think that. I mean, I think probably uh, a, a player in a double pivot would suit him. Um, I think a little bit better, uh, but that's not where he is. He is he's on this team, and so he has to he has to play the eight.
0: We even discussed him playing as like a wide midfielder in a four-four-two, where kind of he he has the the wherewithal to kind of range a little bit. I I think that um his his most positive strengths are being the late arriver into the box, running through the channel and getting on the end of something and and having like the oeuvre to do something with the ball from that range and his set piece delivery. Sporting doesn't use him for either of those things. Now, the first one, maybe he could be doing more. I don't know what's stopping him from doing that. If it's, as you noted him, not understanding how to balance his defensive responsibilities with that. I thought it was interesting. You talked about his spatial awareness and the, the sophistication in his runs and how he takes them and where he, where he positions himself, because I wonder if that also leaves him out of position to make the chant, the run in the channel at the right time. Um, So I hadn't considered it in that way. So that's, that's really interesting for me to kind of, ponder but i think that those those skills of being a late box arriver and a good set piece guy aren't necessarily things that this system prioritizes it certainly doesn't prioritize for him or he's not feeling confident in utilizing those effectively let me put it that way um and so i think that that's part of the but you, you you're also right it it might be fine for him to be a spot starter for cup matches or midweek games and a bench guy otherwise that can help when necessary he he certainly wasn't a significant downgrade coming on for kinda and i'm very glad yeah. it was him and not Raj. yeah so i i think that from that perspective as long as he's continued to use continue to be used in that way. I think that there are some positives there. And yeah, that that, that may be the best way to to utilize him long term.
1: I'm I'm sitting here thinking and maybe instead of comparing him to like uh, to, to Raj, maybe a better comparison would be um, like a, a slight, slightly downgraded like Kellen Acosta uh,
0: type player. Um, Do you think he has the defensive responsibility like he's as good at tackling as Acosta is because i don't know
1: so so there are some games where where he has lots of tackles like he he was one of the leading tacklers um in the game against the sounders even though he only played for the second half um a a lot of that i think is game states and that sort of thing but um i mean he can he can do that job um But I think I think to your point, he he's not great at that job or he would have been
0: played at the six at some point in the past, you know, three or four years. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, that's the position he played with the twos or the Old Swope Park Rangers. Um, So, yeah, the fact that he is not employed in that manner for sporting should tell you something about whether they believe he can do that. Although I think the other problem with the the six as far as how Vermees looks at it is that he's looking for a more of a recoveries guy who can then turn that, turn that into a transition event. And I don't know that Felipe is that guy. You know what I mean? Like even once he wins the tackle, is he releasing the pass that yeah. turns I, I, that transition event forward?
1: I think that's a good point is that he's not, um, he's not a super effective progressive passer. Um, and I think that that in order to be a, a starting quality player, he, he probably well not
0: probably needs to be he definitely needs to be. Um, so, yeah. And that's not to say Remy Voltaire is an outstanding progressive passer, but he's better than Felipe is for yeah. sure. The last thing I want to get through in the top three that we did not get to, which made both of us extremely happy was that Raj and Zusi were used as <laughs> Kill the game veteran substitutions in the last 15 minutes. Doesn't it doesn't it feel good? <laughs> doesn't it feel great? you have these extremely high quality veterans that know game state and know how to help know how to close out a game. And you have Graham Zusi who is extremely versatile and can play any number of positions, and you put him in at, I guess, I don't know. I don't know. They were kind of in a flat 442 almost at the end of this game. Um, four, five, one kind of, and Zussi was playing as like a wide, the wide side of that four, five, one in front of Jake Davis. It was, it was nice. It was nice to see.
1: Well, and you know, that, that is as, as, as we both know, that's a drum that I've been beating for a a while is, uh, because I, because I think, I think Zussi has, um, a lot of value to the team as, uh, an impact substitute, um, because, uh, because, you know, he can play at, at any of the three, um, um, levels. He can play it on the forward line, the midfield line, or, uh, or as a fullback on the defensive line. And like those players, I mean, they don't grow on trees, right? I mean, that's why Christian Roldan is like, is, you know, one of the, uh, the, the, um, you know, elite players in the league is because he's able to do that. Um, and so having a player like that, who you can bring on to, as you said, kill off games, uh, who's technical and smart and savvy and, and, and has that veteran know-how I think is uh, I think, I think at this point there's more value to, to Zussi in that kind of role. Um, and it has the added, um, uh, the added benefit of extending his career even longer uh, because he, I mean, Look, if you keep starting that guy and running him out 90 minutes, 90 minutes, he's just body, His body's going to break down and he's going to miss more and more time due to injury because that's, that's what happens, you know? And, and, um, and so I, I would much prefer him to, I mean that he could, he could play probably until he's a 40, honestly, just, just, you know, in that role that I just described.
0: Yeah. Fitness isn't a problem for him. No, it's just father time is getting him as far as his effectiveness in transition and, um, you know, his ability to play 3000 minutes. You know what I mean? Like those things are going to get him, but he's exceptionally fit. I mean, that that's not the problem. It's just, you know, he's 36. That's the problem. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was good. I, I'm I'm all for this. Apparently, Roger even made a joke uh, when he did media availability with the broadcasters for the game this weekend, talking about the fact that he thought he was going to be sitting on the bench watching this team cook most of the season. <laughs> so, like, I, I think these guys know what their position is. It's yeah. just been an unfortunate need, I guess. I mean, I don't know if Raj has been needed to play as much as he has, but... Yeah, Um. The, the coach believed he did. So, yeah. you know, that, that's where we that's where we are. So speaking of coaches, let's move on to tactical corner, which is our weekly deep dive into the tactical side of the game. Do coaches matter? Now, this is a difficult one for me to bring up on this podcast because, as you know, as a listener of this podcast, we talk about tactics a lot. We talk about how players are uh put on the field, what roles they're put in, the the things that they're asked to do and how important it is to the function of a team as a whole. And the concept of this do coaches matter conversation would sort of lead you to believe that maybe it doesn't, maybe that maybe maybe all the stuff that we concentrate on isn't necessarily that important. And to be fair, I don't think that's what the output of this article is saying, but John Muller an article up, I think, on Sunday, Saturday, discussing, you know, what is the actual impact of a coach? And and it's I bring it up now for a couple of reasons. One, as I noted in the intro, there's been a lot of discussion about Peter Vermees and his employment and whether it should continue or whether it should not continue. And, you know, bringing a new manager in would make these changes. And we've discussed them quite a bit on this podcast as to what they possibly could Provide to this team. Additionally, two coaches were just fired. Uh, Gerhard Struber was fired from uh, Red Bull, and Ezra Hendrickson was fired from the Chicago Fire. So, twelve games or eleven games into the season, and we've already got coaches being fired from MLS teams. I think if uh, if Sporting had lost to Seattle and that news came out, there would be a lot of gnashing of teeth and upset fans. Uh, The fact that those teams had made changes and sporting had not. So I thought it was interesting reading this article at this time, going through the the data that's behind it. In short, and this is this is not just from the data, but it's also from most of the bigger coaches in the world, including Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp and and everybody's favorite Big Sam Allardyce wages equal wins. If you look at all the data over the last 25 years, the teams that spend the most money on players have the most wins. Now, some of this is correlation causation. Um, You know, it's a it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Of course, if I'm spending more money and I have the best players, my team's going to be best set up to succeed. Also, the analysis they used included all spending. So not just the wages of the players and the transfer fees and all that, but also what you're paying your staff, what you're paying your coaches, all that. So all of that's included. And if that spending is included, of course, you're paying more for your coach. So that has an impact on that number. But the original concept that they brought up was players are effectively on their own. With the exception of halftime for the entirety of the game to make decisions on their own and do their you know, influence the game on their own. So therefore, from a purely statistical perspective, what has a coach actually done to influence the game personally? I'm going to stop I well, let, you, let okay. you think about I that mean, for a second.
1: Uh, so, so that's one of the interesting things about soccer compared to other sports is that uh, the, the, the coach, the influence a coach um, um, can provide in soccer is I think um, in, a lot different right i mean you can't call timeouts you you, you can't draw plays like that you can't you, you know um you're not andy reed with the clipboard hiding is you know <laughs> hiding his is his, his his lips so people can't read his lips when he's calling in plays like that is it, it, in that respect right there's um but that's like uh, that's also one of the things that i really like about soccer is that there is a lot put on the players it's a lot of you know sort of uh uh, improvisation, uh, that's required a lot of, um, you know, uh, creative, um, and quick thinking that's required of players. Um, but so, so I would, I would kind of agree that like, especially in a, during a game, uh, maybe the coach's influence is not so much, but, uh, but I think that coaches have so much influence in all kinds of other, uh, aspects too. I mean, when you're talking about uh, um, man management, especially at those teams that spend lots and lots of money on players, I mean, it's a really, uh, it's a really, really important thing. And 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 it's always important to remember that, like, that yeah, you know, um, um, you maybe you have to spend a lot of money to get a lot of wins, but just because you spend a lot of money doesn't guarantee you're going to get wins. And, uh, and you know, I think that you can see, you can, all you gotta do is look at Chelsea right now who has spent, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And now it's all amortized over, you know, a decade. And, um, and they have not found, um, the right tweaks uh, to 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 be a winning team this year, even though they've they've churned through managers, there are other things going on at that club that sort of um, that sort of dictate um, you know what's going on on the field, uh, and it's it's not something that a manager has been able to solve. And maybe that maybe that like proves the opposite point, right? That managers don't matter because they certainly haven't mattered there, right? Um, but I think that i mean i i don't think manchester city would be as good um without pep with somebody in there instead of pep um i think that i don't know i mean i don't know so i've talked myself the... i've talked myself into circles around it uh, <laughs> uh, already this, this uh, is
0: the fun part of this of this yeah. of this thought process is that absolutely if you, if, you, if you consider all parts of this argument you start to come to to grips with what they're trying to say, which yeah. is maybe managers don't mean as much as we think they do. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Um, it's not that they don't mean anything. I think there's absolutely a value to managers but and the quality of a manager. And obviously, the best teams that spend the most money also have the highest quality managers. So it's it's difficult to separate the two and understand what the value actually is. It's interesting you brought up Chelsea because one of the things that they brought up in the article was in a one-year statistical sample, the variance between wage and performance becomes larger, obviously. So over a 10-year sample, 90% of performance can be applied to wages. Over a one-year sample, it's closer to 70% can be applied to wages. And there's that 30% window. So now, is a a manager worth 30%? Well, not really. There's some statistical variance that occurs here when you're talking about a smaller sample size. There's also, you know, anything from bad refereeing to injuries to any number of things that can impact that that value. As you noted with Chelsea, they've had three managers run through there and none of them have really been able to do anything about it there's something systemic going on there that may be personality related, maybe man management related. Um, I think you and I can both agree that we like what Eric Ten Hag is doing in Manchester United, but it's not like his results are significantly better than managers before him.
1: Yeah. Not lately. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. I, I, it, period. Eric, yeah. Um um to Solshar had a much better record than Ten Hag yeah. did. So, there now, you could see some undercurrent of problems during that time. But you look at Ten Hag, and he is, at, I believe, building a structure for something good. But the the thing that the article goes into is discussing: Are these clubs actually effective at identifying that that small difference? And it is a small difference, but it is, I think, in my opinion, the the lever. That creates true success at the top of these leagues. If you're going to be Manchester City getting a draw at the Bernabeu today while you're trying to win out to win the Premier League, you need a guy that's capable of handling all that. Right. You have to have a gaffer that's capable of dealing with all those things. I think that there is a. I think that if that person is, let's say, Graham Potter, no, I don't think that you're going to get the same performance out of them. And but it's it's. I think that it's. I feel that it's not necessarily proven by data.
1: So I think that that a lot of um, like so much of what makes coaches uh, effective is context dependent, and so you know Graham Potter. Was uh, very effective in a certain context, and um, and and that's a context that involves, you know, uh, maybe starting uh, with younger players or players who, you know, aren't sort of at that elite level, and then coaching that up, and and maybe relying a little bit more on um, on the system and a little bit less on. Uh, the talent of your players, and and when you make a transition to a place like Chelsea, um, that gets turned on its head because you um, you now have um, you now have you know elite players and the egos to match uh, to to manage that, and so so in many ways it's like a completely different job, um, and so it's not surprising to me that that you know that that would not be successful. But if you look at like you know when when Chelsea brought Tuchel in. Um, and they won and they won the, the, uh, the league, um, really what that team was lacking was uh, previous to Tuchel was they were like lacking uh, a, a defensive structure and a and a, and a, and a, and a, a stability in their spine. And I think that that's, I mean, he didn't bring in new players, right? I mean, like he just came in and he won with all the players that were there uh, originally. And, and I think that it was just a, a little tweak in, and sort of a mindset and approach. Um, but, you know, but he wasn't able to carry that through, and I think, you know, a lot of that is, I think, man management of players, but it's also your ability to, you know, communicate effectively with your superiors, and um, and and I don't think that that Tuchel was uh, very adept at that, and so, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, I I think that 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 maybe maybe you could say that that um, that th- having the right manager isn't the most important thing, but having the wrong manager can really screw you quickly.
0: That was the point that I was going to get to is that I think at the highest level of these coaches, that there's not as much separation between them as you think. And as far as how much they can impact an individual game, but there is a separation in how they fit with this player staff that they have, how they're motivating them and getting them to their full performance. Um, the st- a statistician would disagree with me, but a statistician would look at this over a 10-year sample size and no coach right. other than Peter Vermees is at their is at their spot for 10 years right. to be able to actually effectively compare that. Um I thought it was interesting you brought up Tuchel cuz I think Tuchel's situation is Different for a couple of reasons. One of them is the fact that they they changed ownership while he was there. Mm-hmm. And I think that had a lot to do with mm-hmm. the chaotic nature of what was going on with that club at that time, along with Tuchel's fairly dictatorial stance on how he employed players and, and whatnot that, that I think lost people's investment at a certain point. And that's a part of this article that's not really discussed as a psychology part of it. Yeah. It's a there's big, it's a, a big part. There's a, there's a significant part of this that is man management and psychology that is not discussed in this. And like if if
1: like, you can convince everybody that you're the special one, they're going to think you're a great coach,
0: no matter what happens for a short period of time. And I think that's <laughs> the point of the, that's the point of the article uh-huh. is that, Statistically, that only works for a, a small period. Sure. Over the long term, it's still about quality of players yep. and getting the best quality players that you can afford. Yep. Um,
1: but it's also, but but so so quality of players, yes. But uh, but I think that um, I. I I think that fit is still like really important you have to have you have to have players that fit together and that uh, and that are able to play a coherent system with one another um and and if you don't have that um and that's sort of the 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 you know the squad building and squad rotation component of it uh if you screw that up uh you can undermine all of your uh all of your you know uh, accolades that you get for acquiring cool
0: players Yeah, I mean, scouting and the the backroom staff is really important. I this is this is the conversation we were trying to have last week about Vermees, which is Mm -hmm. has sporting director, chief soccer officer Peter Vermees been surpassed. Right. And I think that. There's a reasonable argument to say that he has. But he's never given up that job without completely leaving, so Right. right. You're sort of tied to it. You know what I mean? Like you yep. sort of hitched your post to it at this point. I think um, the the other interesting part of the article was talking about the new manager bounce. If a team's playing poorly and they swap managers and they, they get some positive results that come from it. Very interesting part of the article. Again, if you have a subscription to The Athletic, I would ask that you go read it because there's a bunch of stuff I'm glossing over related to this. But it does discuss is the new manager bounce real? And the statistics do support the fact that when you hire a new manager, there is a positive change in results that come from it. But when they actually normalize it against all other manager changes. So when you fire a manager for performance, right, the team's performing really poorly, the the counter the counterfactual assertion is that you would say they they've been playing like shit for a long time. Eventually, they were going to start playing better. Mm -hmm. Right. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't all of a sudden become very terrible, they're eventually going to return to form. So is the coach responsible for that? Or is statistics responsible for that regression to the mean? The second part of the conversation is um, when you, when you take that new manager balance that is statistically proven to be true and you compare it to all other manager changes, i.e. guy got a new job somewhere or any of those other things, all of a sudden it balances out and you see that it's not related to the actual coaching change. Mm -hmm. As far as providing good performance, it's just statistical variance that happens. Um, And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying that, it's interesting to think about as to whether or not and because I've been as big a part of this conversation as anybody thinking, especially over the last couple of weeks, thinking about is a coaching change due? Do we need to do this? Is it going to provide a change in form? Well, you saw the same coach put the same system out on Sunday and sporting played much better. So I'm not saying that, I mean, I think his personnel choices were different, which had something to do with it, but it, it it does beg the question, would a coaching change actually improve the results of this team?
1: I think that you and I were both, I always of the opinion that, um, that 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 wouldn't be sufficient, right? Like, like you could change uh coaches and um maybe you get some as you as you discuss some short term bump in results but the but the fact is is the underlying structures of the team and the club are such that that uh you you can't make like a substantial change without um, in, in, in the way the team plays without making a substantial change in the way everything is organized. Like it's all sort of tied together and, and, um, for good or bad, uh, the club has sort of hitched, uh, their wagon to this thing. And, uh, and th- they're never getting out of it. <laughs> you're, you're never going to, yeah, you know, we, in 20 years, they we might be still be playing a four, three, three. You know, I mean, uh, you you never know. Um, um, and it might be back again in all the rage uh, uh, because that's what happens with soccer. Um, so. So, yeah, you, I you and I are
0: going to be 60 years old doing this podcast, talking about how the four through three is back and we're going to be back in it. I, I, I think that um, the point that you made about it all being connected is what I would say is most important. And is sort of glossed over in this article. All of it plays a part in some way, shape or form. And so that this is what I would say about this. I, I am being a little bit of a contrarian while I talk about this on the podcast to get you thinking differently. And I'm challenging Cody a little bit to think differently. But the reality of the situation is all of it's connected. All of it has some level of importance. Is it the most important thing or the least important thing or somewhere in the middle? Probably somewhere in the middle. I'm not going to say that um, the difference between Peter Vermees and any mid-level MLS coach is good, bad, or indifferent. What I would say is that all of the stuff related to how this team is constructed how those players fit in the roles they're asked to play in, how they are motivated to do the things that they need to do, how they are trained up in training every week to be prepared to do those things. How well, and that's the part we didn't even discuss is like, while the players are free to do whatever the fuck they want on the pitch, they've been trained all week and weeks prior to be told what they're supposed to do, what their responsibilities are on the pitch. And they have that has been drilled into them by the coaching staff. So, all of this stuff, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth a little bit, but all this stuff is connected and it's hard to put a significant value on one thing or another. Can a coaching change impact a season? Usually, only to pull it up from relative despair. It's generally not something you see teams doing to improve their chances of winning a league title it never happens and there's a reason why so yes the this this can be something that needs to happen at times but there are generally a lot more reasons than just what's happening on the field
1: yeah um so i think i mean like most of our conversations, this sort of like gets me thinking about uh, coaching uh, at at youth levels and um, development. And obviously that's a completely different thing um, is coaching, you know, to develop players versus coaching uh, players who are already at that point. Um, and, and it's like so it's like something that I've always sort of uh, wondered because um, it goes hand in hand with our discussion of of, you know, talent pool and. Um, like, can you, you know, can like how important is, uh, a player's like native talent and how much, um, how much can you add to that or, or, uh, level it up by, you know, the proper uh, coaching or, or development. And that's, I mean, that's something I think about a lot and, um, and i don't i don't know that i have like i don't have even like really solidified thoughts on it because it's um it's kind of a, a of a conundrum and if you if you you know if you think that um that development doesn't matter that coaching and development uh, in that respect doesn't matter so much uh then then absolutely you need to expand the 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 talent pool that you're looking at but if you you know if you if you if 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 the other is true if if the coaching and development are are super important or coaching is super important to development then um then uh, you know it might be worth investing more and in, and making sure that that uh, that that's what you're doing that you're developing players uh as a coach and you know i i i always tie stuff back to my own experiences um and my experiences as a coach are uh um, are such that, um, you know, I really understand the value of being a good, uh, communicator because, um, especially with soccer, um, you have to kind of, um, you really have to encourage, uh, players to, uh, to kind of think for themselves, um, to solve problems, uh, for themselves. And I think that, um, more advanced coaches, um, um, that is a priority for them. It's not just about, um, and this is at a youth development um, um, level. It's not just about you know drilling players to um, to to do automatisms or or or, or whatnot. It's about um, it's about uh, giving them um, tools so that they can solve problems on the field. And I think that that is sort of uh, that is sort of of a, a, a next level. Uh, skill to be able to do. and I think that that's something that that soccer asks of players and of coaches that uh, that maybe not um, a lot of other sports do um, in that way.
0: Yeah, that was the point I was gonna come I was gonna come back on when you talked about development. I think development for a lot of people is making them pass better, making them dribble better, making them do whatever technical skill better. Most of these players, you're not going to be developing that stuff. Maybe you're developing their ability, maybe a little bit, their passing or touch ability. But for the most part, once they've reached a squad like this, even if they're 22, they're, you're not working on that stuff. Th- those are skills that are honed when they're U11 players, right? That, that's stuff you're working on at that point. The development you can give them is helping enable them to make good decisions on the field, at a given point in time. So when we talk about the players are on their own for 45 minutes a half. It's in those scenarios where they where something happens to them that you're enabling them to perform well when the ball hits their feet and they see all of these things happening around them. It's the most dynamic game in the world as far as the avail the, the movement of your teammates, where they are and how you can play with them and being able to respond to that those dynamics effectively is something you can develop as a coach, in my opinion. And it's something you can develop late into someone's career. Um, so, yes, I think that there's value there. Uh, Benny Fellhabers told a story over and over again about how when he came to Sporting Kansas City, he had to be taught how to defend effectively. Um, it was just not something that he had in his wheelhouse at the level that Vermees needed him to to be a central midfielder for this team and he learned it and then damn near won MLS MVP so I think that there are there are opportunities for you to do that that the question is are you connecting with the player effectively obviously Peter connected with Benny very well they have a very positive relationship to this day You're not always going to connect with every player in that way, but that is the point of a coach, of a coaching staff, of leadership, is being a leader for this group of people effectively. Placing a value on it is the hard thing to do, and your effectiveness as a leader is a hard thing to measure because, as we noted, all these things are connected. The quality of the players you have, the ability of them to accomplish the role you're asking them to do, the scouting and availability and all the other and, you know, putting the right formation and tactics together, and all of it's connected. And it's difficult to put an individual value on any any one of those things. So I thought that the article was very interesting, because it was boiling down the philosophy of does a manager actually matter? I think the reality is, yes, it meant it, the a managers matter there is a significant value to a high quality manager and it's in their ability to lead a team. Are they the end all be all that sometimes they're often purported to be? I think not. And I think players hold more responsibility than they're often given.
1: Yeah. I think that that's a fair way to look at it. I think that, uh, um, no matter how good you think a manager is, they're only going to be as good as, uh, as the players allow them to be, you know, and, um, um, I, I say this all the time, you know, one of the reasons that I, so, so I coach, um, I, I coach high school girls and high school boys, and I always, uh, I kind of always preferred it to, to, um, to work with the girls because, um because they follow instructions (laughs) and they uh they uh the communication i think is a little bit um, um more open and uh when I coach boys, like they, they just kind of like to do what they like to do, and so sometimes, you know, you can, uh, you can uh, communicate um, as, as much as you can in practice, but uh, that all sometimes goes out the window uh, when they get on the field, and you can see youth coaches do it all the time. You know, uh, really try and save their communication. Um, for game days instead of for practices and then they end up you know doing what we call joysticking and just standing on the sideline and telling trying to tell every player where they need to be and uh, i think that soccer is just like um just one of those sports where you have to you have to really uh be an effective communicator you know before your your team gets on to the field because uh because there's so much um there's so much a responsibility put on individual players um, in a game uh, that they they don't have time to think about those things like in the game right They're in the game. And so all of it has to happen. All of all of that tone has to be set uh, far in
0: advance to game day. That's why I always laugh at Vermees with all of his shouting and histrionics on the sideline. It's shallow. He's talked about this in interviews before. Unless he's like directly on his Uh side, like next to him, he doesn't even Uh hear him. Like none of the players do all the stuff that he's yelling and screaming. Nobody's paying attention to any of it. And so that part of it is absolutely for show that. I I mean, I believe that Vermes thinks he can communicate with these guys in in real time. I promise you that 0.01% of it is actually landing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but it's also for like uh, just speaking for me, like I am I could not be one of those coaches who sits on the sideline and just watches like that is just not that's not in me I like to be up and in it and and that's Peter Vermes too like you got to be I don't. It, it's it's it, you know. It's I'm not ripping. asking him it's, to. It's I'm fun. not asking him
0: to change. He's in the yeah. game. He's competitive. Yeah. He he That's wants it. to see the things happen in the in the way that that you know he knows the team can accomplish them. I'm not mad at him for doing it. Yeah. I'm just saying <laughs> that I don't know what the I don't think there's much effectiveness to it as far as helping no, the team. I do
1: totally anything. agree. I totally agree. But there's so so uh when I when I got my coaching certification, they actually encouraged coaches to. To not do that, right? They encourage coaches to uh to be the coach who sits quietly on the side. Schmetzer sidelines.
0: doesn't. He just chills most of the match. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but that's like that's some coaches are like that. And and I think that that coaching is uh um you should be able to, you know, be able to express yourself. If you want to sit on the sideline and take notes in a cute little notebook, you should you should go ahead and do that. And if you wanna, you know, get into it, you should uh, you should do that too.
0: Just don't pull your hamstring like you're in Klop. Okay, let's
1: take it easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness gracious.
0: That was the most, like, old dad soccer coach move of all time. It was time,
1: ridiculous. Dude. It was so funny. <laughs> the, 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 the,
0: the,
1: the person who I feel most sorry for, actually, uh, especially, you know, during sporting games, is the fourth official. Because uh, Peter, Peter just abuses the fourth official all the time. And I... Uh, it's amazing to me.
0: I mean, honestly, <laughs> MLS reps kind of deserve it. Let's be honest; like yeah, they kind of do. I, I and I, I mean, I don't understand. I, like, I don't when, think it when, endears him. I don't think it endears him to them in any way. But he does it regardless.
1: I don't think. I don't think that um, comparatively like each individual ref is worse than their foreign counterparts because we see individual MLS refs go to, you know, world cup and other, uh, other big tournaments. And they, I don't think they do a poor job. Um, uh, they don't do it any worse of a job than their counterparts from other, uh, countries. But I, but you and I both watch a lot of soccer, man. And, and I'm telling you, MLS referees make themselves part of the 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 narrative way more than most other leagues. Um, And there's a couple in the Premier League
0: that do it, that do it on that level. But yeah, for the most part, it's 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 just the the way that they do it. It's so predictable. It's so, um, you know, I'm not going to call yellow cards early, although he in fairness, Um, Rivas called a couple early yellow cards and a lot of people got mad about the one on Voltaire, but Alex Roldan got the first early yellow when he should have two minutes later, Voltaire does a similar foul. It's not as hard, but it's a similar foul and he gets the same call. I I thought I didn't think he was that bad other than the fact that Roldan should not have been on the field for the last five minutes of that game. He, he. He, the dude got three yellows, OK, and he only got called for one of them. So I, I, I understand where some of that frustration comes from. But I've also watched a billion soccer matches where guys get away with shit. So it's just like I I don't yeah. I don't think it was that poorly called. Um, but I, there have been some shockers. My, my main issue with MLS refs is how they call the game differently in the first half than the second half. Yeah. I wish that you should just call the game the same. If it's a yellow card, it's a yellow card. If it's not, it's not. If you're going to allow them to play harder, fine. But when you lose control in the 75th minute, you can't throw out 11 yellow cards. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, you yep. you, you got to call a game the way you're calling it.
1: I, I I honestly think that MLS refs have gotten better um, in terms of game control, game management. Um, you should watch I a La like, Liga like...
0: if if you think MLS refs are bad, watch La Liga. <laughs> Just watch La Liga a little bit because they they do some <laughs> galaxy brain shit in La Liga matches. I don't.
1: I don't. Uh, I don't. I've never watched very many La Liga games, honestly.
0: The the Real Madrid Barcelona matches get the good ref, but yeah, sure. you need to go watch the south of the Vigo play Majorca, And and that one is going to have some questionable shit going on. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that it's one of those deals where I'm so used to it at this point. it 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 doesn't affect me that much, except when it's exceptionally bad. And there have been some of those for sure. sure but in and I will give pro referees a little bit of credit in this when they are exceptionally bad those guys get benched um yeah. they don't they don't go they don't they don't call matches for a while at, oh, or and, at all and and when's the and last frankly, time you seen Baldomero toledo yeah a long time i, I mean is he even a pro referee anymore uh, i don't even I don't know. know i mean frankly, they, they made changes um,
1: the mls use of var is better than um the premier league's use of var Um, so they at least they got that going for them.
0: Well, it's because they don't have the 78 cameras in the stadium to be able to put the lines on the field. Yeah, that's ridiculous. um, Yeah, I mean, you you see, don't I, I will. I will say I did have a conversation with Chad Reynolds about the penalty call. He was fairly certain that that foul occurred outside the box. And I'm like, "Mm -hmm." I I don't know. I he gave me he gave me he he sent me a freeze frame screenshot of it. And I understand what he's saying, but also I'm like, Chad, you're a club employee. So I'm going to like, there's going to be some colored glasses at which I'm going to read this message through. But I mean, once it was called a penalty, you can't ever overturn it. So I think if it was called not a penalty and just a foul outside the box, I think they would struggle to make it a penalty. You know, I mean, either way, I I just think the call in the field stands. Um, But part of it is because that camera angle is from like a 45 degree angle. You can't really see where the person yep. is over the box okay let's move on potpourri all right just like it just like your favorite jeopardy category this is where we discuss one topic that could be anything in and around the sporting kansas city mls soccer sphere we're gonna have a little fun with potpourri tonight because precky tried to fight some dudes he was trying to fight dudes on the sporting kansas city staff and i thought it was hilarious did you see this after at the end I, of the game, Cody?
1: I honestly, I did not. And I, I haven't seen it since I have like almost no idea what you're talking about. I just know that something
0: occurred. Okay. So Precky is an assistant coach for the Sounders has been for a couple years now. Um, there was a there was a mad scuffle at the end of the game it was on the apple tv broadcast they cover they they caught it like right as it was happening but i'm going to give you like the the full breakdown if you guys listen to the scuff podcast or listen or are a patron of it and are familiar with chris russell ie watki he does some really fun things with like video breakdowns and and breakdowns of things on the Scuff podcast as well as he does videos. He's done stuff for Men in Blazers of all places. Like, he's done a lot of little fun things. If you've watched any of the videos related to Greg Berhalter's bounce passes, that's Chris Russell. So, Waki, like, he, he'll get into the details and break all this down. And I felt it was necessary for us to get a full accounting of the Preki fight. Because, hey, he's a sporting Kansas City legend, all-time leading goal scorer. He's going at the technical staff, trying to get into fisticuffs. So we've we've got to we've got to figure out what the hell's going on here, right? Okay. So the first thing I noticed, and this is what this is when, it like dawned on me that something was going on. Right at the final whistle, so they blow the final whistle. At the, it was the Lodero free kick that went nowhere, and Fantas headed it clear. They blow the final whistle. They they do the thing that they do, where they like go straight to the sideline and they show the coaches. Vermees was upset. You could tell, like he had grumpy drill sergeant face on. And I rewound this like three times to make sure it was right because I'm like lip reading. Vermees very clearly said, fucking assholes. OK, so that's the first thing to be to, to take from this. All this data. I don't know what any of this stuff means. I'm just give, I'm just reporting the news. OK, that's all you're getting from me. Reporting the news. So per, Peter Vermees whistle blows. First thing out of his lips is fucking assholes. Then he goes, shakes Brian Schmetzer's hand, shakes some coaching staff's hand, and then they cut away for a second. And you see some of the players sort of milling around, doing whatever. And then all of a sudden they cut back to the sideline. And there's a some sort of crazy brawl happening. And Precky's in the middle of it. And the first thing I see is Ash Wallace, like literally trying to jump over some dudes to destroy Precky. Now, I know that there's some folks on the technical staff that not all of you are familiar with, but Ash Wallace has been a, on the technical staff and assistant coach for this team for a long time, uh, like 10 years, I think. Um, so he's been a, a uh, an assistant coach for this team for a while. Everyone knows Z everyone knows carries of Not everyone knows the rest of the coaching staff. So there's Ash Wallace and Alec Dufty. Who's been the goalkeeping coach. since like 2017. Like, Ash is like trying to come over the top of some dudes at Precky, like very upset. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Alec Dufty's like grabbing him and Dufty. If you don't know him, he's like six foot six. Like he's a big dude. So he's like pulling Ash Wallace back. And, and then all of a sudden you see Schmetzer come in, like grandpa Schmetzer comes in and starts breaking it up. Like he's like, Hey, back off. He gets in front of Precky and tells him to back off. I, I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on, so I had to, like, rewind this a couple times. I think there's some Serbia on Serbia slander going on here. This is just my personal read of the situation, okay? So, Zoran Savic, who's been assistant coach of this team for a long time, um, everyone knows as Z, is originally from what was Yugoslavia when he was born and is now Serbia – and then Preki, also from that same area, he's from Belgrade, the large, the capital city of Serbia now, part of the Yugoslavia back when when uh, Preki was born as well. Is there a little bit of like a I'm from the big city, you're from this little Podunk town or something? I don't know what's going on. I, I'm not. I'm just. I'm just telling you what I see. Preki was having a go at Z. Z's like walking away. I can see Z's bald head off in the, in the distance and Precky like pointing at him and gesticulating towards him while saying some things. And Z sort of turns around and that's when Ash Wallace loses his mind and starts jumping over the top of folks and coming after him. And then you see Z coming up in the middle of it. And Z's like, I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not fucking backing down from you. You think you're hot shit. I, I, I'm, I'm, if you guys have met Z before, um, He's a really nice guy, but he also looks like someone that could be like a, you know, Eastern European mobster if if he wanted to be. So Z starts coming that way and then then things start to get broken up I, again. Grandpa Schmetzer comes in and sort of breaks things up and, and calms everything down. Um, All I will say is when I saw it happen. Someone informed me of the fact that apparently Precky is kind of a dick. He's a little bit of an asshole. And that person was a club employee. So I was, yeah, I need to independently verify, is Precky actually an asshole? And I now have it from several sources that Precky is absolutely an asshole, which kind of sucks, to be completely honest. But um, yeah, so that is my breakdown of the Precky fight. Your thoughts?
1: uh it's a lot of elite a lot of elite athletes are assholes it kind of goes with the territory so you know uh it's uh, it's uh, just frankly hilarious uh it's just uh, i don't know sports are wild man you just passions get all up and you know i, I like i i am not a uh, I, i'm not a very conversational person but i have had to uh i've had to yell at people on the sidelines uh i had to yell at an ad who tried to come onto my side of the field once um like they were upset with something that was going on so they tried to like actually like come from their from their uh bench to my side of the field and um i had to very uh you know aggressively tell them to back off and that's just not my thing um um so these guys are, you know, it's I guess not surprising that 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 it gets heated, uh, especially when you throw in, uh, you know, some nationalities and stuff to it. I wonder if I wonder if when we play St. Louis, I wonder if they'll, uh, you know, they'll, you know, ask them where they went to high school or something, really try and get under their skin. <laughs> I mean that's a that's that's such a that's such low hanging fruit that's such an easy and cheap joke to make. But man, it it works all the time. It's the most
0: ridiculous thing. If uh, you guys follow Zachary Zach Cobb on Twitter, he's getting oh my fights with, with St. Louis fans all the time talking about their high schools. It, it's it's classic. It's unreal. Yeah. Like it, it it only takes like three replies for them to be talking about the high schools they went to. It's it such is, a St. Louis it, thing to it's be so like predictable, so, so tied to your high school. Um, I, I really don't understand it but it is very much a st louis thing
1: so. well it's it's i mean it's because it's because st louis is highly highly segregated and everybody you know after desegregation there was a proliferation of of uh private schools there so everybody goes to private schools um um, not everybody, but I'll, most people there go to private schools. And so the you're people
0: proud of their high school, go to private right,
1: schools. Right. And so, and so, you know, the, the school you go to that your family chose for you to go to that, like that is code for all kinds of socioeconomic, uh, things. And so that's, I think the, the, uh, that's where it comes from.
0: We'll leave it at that for sure. I think I'm that's not, best. I'm, I don't know that I need to get in that conversation anymore than we have been already. All right. One thing to look for. This is our one thing to look for this week. Um, Actually, a couple things, because we have two games coming up. Sporting Kansas City is actually playing an Open Cup match tomorrow night. Uh, We're recording this on Tuesday. So the Open Cup match is uh, in Houston tomorrow night. I saw the team was boarding the plane as we started recording. So, Or they posted it on Instagram at the time we started recording. So they're on their way to Houston tonight, playing down there tomorrow night. Um, If it's 80 degrees here, I can't imagine what it's like in Houston right now. So that's going to be an interesting one. Um, The one thing that I will say is that uh, Ben Olsen has already been talking about having sort of a a backup or substitute kind of lineup for this match. Uh, So it will be interesting to see who, you know, who they have playing. But, uh, you know, ostensibly Ace Aceh and a few of those other guys are not going to be out there. Um, My main thing I'm looking for, Ethan Bryan is apparently on the plane. So good news there. I'd like to see some more of him for sure, especially if we're playing against a secondary side for Houston. I'd like to see Bryant play some more. Um, I'd like to see as much Jake Davis as we can stand without him getting overwhelmed uh, physically. Um, obviously, he just played 90 on Sunday, so you know, however much makes sense for him to play this week. Uh, I wouldn't mind seeing redoya get about a half hour. And that's about it. Hopefully they win. That, that's basically what I'm looking for. Um, Ben Olsen does have Houston playing much more competent soccer than they have in a while so you know we'll have to see what the the lineup looks like and how they function but um, there's some value to saying that this is the only cup other than the league's cup that sporting really has left to play for so maybe it, it might behoove them to take it seriously.
1: I I would imagine that they're going to take it very seriously uh before the uh the win at Seattle I so so I'll just say it like this if 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 the team had lost at Seattle and then lost um at Houston uh I think that um I don't know it's tempting to think that something might have changed but uh, perhaps but we're going to we're not going to think about that well, only happy thoughts good vibes only uh so we we have a win uh we're gonna go down and play against a team who's you know not great um and so maybe we can uh maybe we can steal another win and and get uh, rodoya healthy because uh i still think that 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 could be uh, a big deal it did did, did Leibold just go ahead and get a hamstring replacement or like i don't like what the hell's going on man Jeez.
0: well both he and pierre Right. I I think that uh, my my understanding was Leibold was some they expected him to make it into training sometime this week. Radoya is in is in full training right now. He's been full training now for like a week. Leibold was something like this week they expected him as well as Pierre.
1: So last year didn't didn't uh, Cisneros get injured in in an Open Cup match and then that was it like that was it.
0: Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen him play for this team since.
1: No, uh, he's I mean, he still he, did, he, he
0: still doesn't play for this team. Does he even play for the twos? Like, I don't I think I, don't... I think
1: he played for the twos last game, if I'm okay. not mistaken. Uh, but yeah, well, I mean, he's gone. Wow.
0: That's I mean, weird. kind of kind of like Cameron Duke. Um, Poor guy. I, I, I feel bad for him. I don't think he was given a fair shake at all. But I mean, yeah. I don't also think that he's some world-class player that's hiding in the wrong spot either. Right. It's frustrating because I think that there were some opportunities for him. And as you've noted, it would be nice to have a local player doing something, but Uh it's just, it's just, uh, it's not, I don't think it's happening with him. Uh, The the one thing I will say is that I don't, I I would love to win a game at home. I mean, that would be great. Yeah. (laughs) I would like, I would like to be at a match at home and watch a win that isn't against a semi-pro team that had to ask for the day off. So like, you know, I do want them to win against Houston and and give themselves a chance of something positive uh, regarding the open cup. But I also would like Saturday to be fun. (laughs)
1: Please. Uh, I, I totally agree. I mean, Um, and if it's going to be fun, it's up to sporting Kansas city to make it fun because uh, Minnesota is not
0: fun. They're not. They're an extremely defensive team with no offensive organization whatsoever. Part of it is because they've designed their entire attack around Babello Reynoso, who has not been there for I don't know what reason. He just hasn't been. And then supposedly supposedly was going to be on a plane two weeks ago and they just didn't get on it. And now he is there. So it doesn't seem to me like he's going to be an option for them in this match, which is good because if he was, it'd be a problem. Um, Yeah. Although Adrian Heath is hyper competitive, so if he's the least bit fit, he might put him out there. Uh but it sounds to me like the reports I'm hearing is that it's going to be several weeks before this guy plays soccer for them. Um but yeah, I I mean, I don't know what the hell's going on. I mean, I know there were some legal things potentially going on with him in Argentina, I, I, I but no one's really talking about what the actual specifics are. So, I'm not going to um I'm not going to make assumptions about those things, yeah. but th- him not being available for them is a positive. The one thing that I found kind of crazy about this season is that even though sporting has played very badly and has also, um, not won but one game in the league, they've actually gotten a pretty good shake regarding injuries and available players against their opponents. Um, catching Seattle while Joao Paulo was on a yellow card, Suspension and they had like five guys injured. Yep, like Alex Alex Roldan had to play left back. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And there's been a lot of those this year, and they have not taken advantage of them, unfortunately. But I, I think this is another one where they could take advantage if they play like they, if they play anything like they did against Seattle, I think they're going to be fine. It's
1: going to be, it's going to be difficult because uh, Minnesota is going to going to bunker in and they're going to play very, very defensive. And so it's going to be really hard for sporting Kansas city to create, uh, to create chances, like good chances. Um, And so I think that um, I think that that's really, I think something to look for is, is where the attacking uh, where the attacks are coming from. Are we, are we, are we attacking in half spaces? Are we, are we trying to exploit the middle of the, the, the field at all, or are we just driving it down the sidelines and, and lumping in crosses? Uh, because I think we want to see the former. We don't really want to see the latter. And if we see the latter, it means that we've kind of, uh, regressed a little bit. Six
0: crosses against Seattle. That should tell you everything you need to know. It's (laughs) a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah, It's the talking touches truism right there.
0: (laughs) It should tell you everything you need to know about how this team performed on the weekend, and we hope to see more of it on Wednesday and on Saturday. And on that note, I'm Drew. He's Cody. We will talk to you all next week.
1: Bye.